This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. The 95th Academy Awards are happening this weekend, and Ana de Armas has gotten some serious Oscar buzz for Best Actress. The role? Yet another portrayal of the iconic Marilyn Monroe in Blonde. I can't face doing another scene with Marilyn Monroe. The movie is billed as a psychological drama that explores some of the relationships, struggles, and addictions the famed actress experienced. And a few she didn't. I came away from the film seeing Marilyn as very traumatized and also split in two. Where Norma Jean is this broken person trapped inside the very fake persona of Marilyn Monroe. And while DeArmas was recognized by the Academy, the film itself has divided audiences. And it's earned the disapproval of one critic who feels the director, Andrew Dominic, has taken artistic liberties that reduce and flatten the personhood of Marilyn Monroe. You can tell through his interviews, through the film itself, this man does not like Marilyn Monroe. He doesn't like her art. He doesn't respect her. Critic Angelica Jade Bastien is a Marilyn expert, a Monroe master. And she's here to help us separate fact from fiction. There's enough quotes of things she actually said. I don't know why people keep making stuff up. Angelica wrote a piece for Vulture called The Hollow Impersonation of Marilyn Monroe about Hollywood's multiple failings to portray the late icon. So today, we're dissecting the mythology and timeless intrigue of Marilyn. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Angelica Jade, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a minute. I'm so, so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to be here uh, because I know we are going to get into it. What did you think of the movie? <laughs> oh, Start with ah, laughter. Okay. <laughs> woo. Uh, where do I begin? I have not hated a movie with every cell in my body, every ounce of my spirit, the way I hate mm. blonde. I thought it was self-indulgent in terms of its cinematography. The performances were arch caricatures. And I thought Anna de Armas' performance especially was insulting. Hmm. And it just didn't highlight any aspect of this character's humanity beyond 
trauma, and victimhood. You watch 15 minutes of an actual Marilyn Monroe performance. Ooh, do you feel the breeze from the Segway? Isn't it delicious? And you put it next to what Anna de Armas is doing. Ooh, you feel the breeze from the Subway? Isn't it delicious? It's such a shallow rendition of a human being. I don't hmm. think she understands her voice right. I don't think she understands her physicality. And for people who are saying they studied Marilyn so much, I'm not seeing it. So that's the thing. This film is being treated like a biopic, mm-hmm. but it's based off of a novel, as mm-hmm. in a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. Not only that, this is the second such film that has been based off of this novel, mm-hmm. Blonde, by Joyce Carol Oates. The Blonde TV movie was treated also as a biopic. Yep. The story in the film focuses on things that never happened to Marilyn or things that maybe didn't happen in that exact way. Mm-hmm. Like a forced abortion is something mm-hmm. that happens in the film. Mm-hmm. Twice. Twice. Yep. Yes, twice. And that's not something that happened to her in life. She did say in her lifetime that you know she had been mm-hmm. sexually abused, but not exactly in the way that's being shown in the film. Like, It's just there are these really, I guess, really tragic and traumatizing things that happen to Marilyn, the character within the film of Blonde, that just don't have any connection or or grounding in real life. It just seems weird. Oh, does it seem weird or does it seem in line with how little agency we give beautiful women because they can only be beautiful? Hmm. And so if beauty is corrupted, which people think Marilyn's beauty was corrupted by what Hollywood represents and all its evils, then all it can be is broken time and time again in these stories. And I think people like to break down women. When you read about Marilyn through the lens of friends she had, it's really fascinating to hear how dynamic and how many sides she has because we all have multiple sides and complications as human beings, or at least I hope so, unless you're boring as hell. One of my favorite essays about Marilyn was written by Truman Capote, who was a very close friend of hers. And it begins with Truman and Marilyn at a funeral. And she's like coming in late and they have a fun back and forth. And Marilyn made fun of Queen Elizabeth with a rather derogatory word. Watching Blonde, you cannot imagine that vision of Marilyn being salty. You can't see any sense of humor in her. She has no levity in that movie. She's as heavy as an anchor. Mother, it's me. It's me, Norma Jean. So I want to talk about that. In biopics, or in this case, biopic-like films, um, like Blonde, or My Week with Marilyn, or Norma Jean and Marilyn, or or what have you. Oh, that one's Um, bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I feel like, and you say in your piece, Marilyn Monroe has never been played well by any actress, even though some of the actresses who've played her are really talented. They are really talented. Yeah, definitely. Why is Marilyn so hard to play and get right? Ooh, I can get into acting. There's multiple reasons for this. One, I think, because the fictions about Marilyn are so entrenched and end up being like the force behind all of these films... These women aren't really given roles that are interesting. It's not an interesting rendition of a character. We see this fiction really take hold 
that Norma Jean was a little girl within the blonde bombshell of Marilyn Monroe who was all fiction. But I also think it's an acting thing because acting goes through different movements throughout film history. And I think a lot of modern actors kind of look down on actors from classic Hollywood as just being personas, but not actually doing actual work with craft. And so there's a sense that there's some condescending nature to a lot of these roles like oh well she wasn't acting she was just being herself and she was just being beautiful all I think is Marilyn Monroe understood her angles Marilyn Monroe understood how to interact with the camera so a lot of actresses I think kind of look down on Marilyn as a human being and as a character they may play because they don't respect her as an artist they don't think of her as an artist in the first place they think of her as a tragedy in a cautionary tale and human beings are more complicated than their endings a lot of times Hmm. why is it that hollywood decides to reward playing marilyn when it didn't really reward her in her lifetime because hollywood loves to cannibalize its own past while misunderstanding it very intensely I mean, point blank, period. That is how that industry works. And if they can like take a dead body and animate it long enough to get some money, to get some acclaim, to to make it seem like Hollywood has progressed, part of the reason we keep going back to Marilyn in these movies is like, see, see how bad actresses used to have it? Y'all should be lucky. Y'all aren't getting cast and couched and whatever, whatever. Mm. And it's like, no, all of this stuff that harmed Marilyn is still going on. What are you guys talking about? Hollywood is always misremembering its own past Mm. in a way that's, I think, really indicative of American culture as a whole, because America as a country is built on forgetfulness of its own sins. It's not surprising. Hmm. Pulling out from on-screen depictions of Mailer Monroe, she's a cultural icon in the grandest Mm -hmm. sense. Um, An interest in her story has endured for decades. Mm -hmm. What are the tropes or stereotypes Mm -hmm. that comprise the Maryland mythological canon? Uh, The Maryland mythological canon. There's a really big obsession with tying the gynecological, namely her inability to have a child. She had miscarriages in her life. And that alongside... The fact that her mother dealt with mental illness is the reason why this woman is mad. Because even though she's a goddess and beloved by many, she can't fulfill an essential aspect of womanhood in the minds of these writers, which is having a child. It's it's honestly a little galling. There's also an obsession with madness because this culture loves to watch white women unravel really dramatically. There's Little interest in her as an artist, but there's a lot of interest in her screwing people, the whole Kennedy connection, which I've always felt is like way overstated. And often writing about her through the lens of the men who were in her life as if that was the most interesting aspect of her. It's interesting you you brought up the Kennedy connection um, that, that leads to my next question. Part of what contributes to this Maryland mythology is how deeply She is tied to giant institutions of Americana, such as Hollywood, obviously. In bringing up the Kennedys, you brought up another. But could you lay out some of those touch points, these these institutions, American institutions that Maryland's so connected to, 
um, that really make her, for some, an image of Americana. I think one reason Marilyn endures and is so fascinating to a lot of people is that she exists at the nexus of a lot of very important things. Politics. Then there's also, obviously, Hollywood, but also mid-century American literature. She was friends with, like, Carson McCullers. And then there's also the aspect of, you know, people's obsession with psychiatry, people's obsession with method acting. She was at the actor studio. She's like intersecting with all these major artists, people, movements in a way that's like super fascinating to imagine her in these spaces, but Mm -hmm. also allows writers of an interesting vantage point into essentially American ideas, institutions, movements, people. I think that's why a lot of these writers turn to Marilyn. I know that's why Joyce Carol Oates definitely did because it allowed Mm -hmm. her to discuss and, you know, create a piece of literature enveloped in everything that was going on at that time in history. You Mm -hmm. can touch on so much through Marilyn. That's why Marilyn becomes a vessel rather than a person for people. Coming up, Marilyn the artist, and why Angelica Jade calls the late star the patron saint of high femme. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Which aspects of real-life Marilyn do you think are overdue for their proper treatment? For me, the aspect of Marilyn that's most overdue for proper treatment is her as an artist and her relationships with other women. Hmm. Because if you watch Blonde or any movie about her, you would never know she would be friends with a woman like Carson McCullers or was around as many queer people as she was. I mean, I, you even you just saying like <laughs> Marilyn Monroe with other women. Like when I Google image search my brain, (laughs) you know what I mean? I I don't really ever think of any stories of her in connection with other women. That's a really good point. Yeah. Or like when she was rooming with actress Shelly Winters and God, they have, Shelly Winters has some fun stories about Marilyn and you see like a silly side of Marilyn, the Marilyn who couldn't cook, but would try and like would joke about it. Uh, the Marilyn who was maybe a little bit of a messy roommate or, you know, all these aspects that make someone human. Women often see details in Marilyn that other people miss, except for Truman Capote and every gay man around her. I think they kind of got her also in a different way than the men who wanted to have sex with her. There are so many aspects of her story that match up with someone like a Marilyn Brando. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It reminds me of this great line that you had in your piece that really spoke to that. The trouble with being a woman and making your art look so natural is that the world believes you unaware of your own magic. You're less skilled artist than unaware naif, merely happening upon great talent. 
Talk to me about that line. There's sometimes when you write something, you're like, yeah, baby, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why I wrote that bit of my essay was because it just became really glaring to me with Blonde what was functioning in all these works underneath the surface. And again, it kind of goes back to the inability to see her as a human being. If you're not seeing someone as a human being, how can you see them as an artist in control of their own talent? Marilyn has this quote that I'm going to read from this really great book called Marilyn in Manhattan, Her Year of Joy by Elizabeth Winder. And the quote goes like this. Recently, somebody asked me, what are you trying to do in New York? What do you honestly want to be? I told them, I want to be an artist. That is essential to understanding Marilyn. She cared deeply about art and filmmaking and photography, and she wanted to fully inhabit her talent and fully be seen as an intellectual and an artist. And that's the one thing people withheld from her in life and continue to withhold from her in death. Is there any way that her roles do mirror how she was in real life, any of them? I am always very hesitant to tie an actor too much to the roles that they chose. I will say that various roles definitely demonstrate a sort of care and a sincerity and a sweetness and an empathy um, that she had that I don't think is really shown in movies about her. I think people like kind of forget how poor she grew up. She was really connected to w- her working class roots throughout her life. She kind of moved with a grace and a regalness that is not bound to the upper class, but is bound to being a very earthy working class person, which you can really see in a early film of hers called Clash by Night. Joe wants me to marry him. I gathered that. But I hate people bossing me. You marry a fellow, the first thing he does is boss you. You told our producer, Corey Antonio, that you think of Marilyn as the patron saint of high femme. I see that in like the most obvious sense, like in the way she looks in photos or things like that. But also like how other high femmes dress up as her on Halloween or like even just the fact that other people I think that could also be thought of as patron saints of high femme, like Mariah Carey. Yes. I mean, Mariah Carey owns Marilyn's piano and there's like a whole chapter about that in Mariah Carey's autobiography. Then you think about the fact that like from Madonna to Lady Gaga to Pamela Anderson, they really clearly reference Marilyn's iconography to create their personas, and it works. I wonder, what parts of Marilyn and her iconography still resonate in contemporary times? Mm. No Hollywood blonde has ever lived up to what Marilyn has done. Every Hollywood blonde has Mm. to walk in her footsteps. Mm. Like she, if you're like a platinum blonde, you got to reckon with her, honey. But- (laughs) I think the iconography that really resonates continuously with Marilyn is the sense that she understands that gender is a performance, but it's a performance you can have fun in. Mm. So it's not a performance that is like a mass necessarily, but it's an extension of persona. And that Mm. like sort of tension is really, I think, interesting. Marilyn also kind of communicates in a sense 
a beautiful woman who refuses to be defined wholly by her beauty, who can make a joke of her beauty, but won't be made into a punchline herself. You feel you have grown? Well, I hardly know how to answer that since they misinterpret that, meaning in inches or something. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> and then it's also, the girl knew how to move. There's so many beautiful actresses that you can watch who don't understand how their body exists in a space. She understood her body. She understood how to angle it. She understood how to angle her face. She understood how to make her eyes look sleepy and sexy, but also bright and alive. And I think Marilyn was really aware of this, all these sort of tensions around beauty that she had to deal with. In a poem, she wrote, actress must have no mouth. And I'm like, she understood what was happening to her. But also, there was joy in her life. No one is wholly defined by trauma. At least I hope not. That that would be a very miserable existence. In a just world, how would we canonize Marilyn Monroe? Mm, that's a really good question. I think what needs to be put at the forefront in order to canonize her properly is to understand people have multiple sides and complications and faces and personas they inhabit that all equal up to one person. I think that's important to canonize, as well as her beauty. Not just on a surface level, but an internal light and beauty that she had that, to me, is stunning. There's a sort of joy that she, like, radiates, and then it encourages you to feel that joy as an audience member. You don't want to marry my son for his money? It's true. Then what do you want to marry him for? I want to marry him for your money. I always believe in the pleasure principle. And I think Marilyn understands that pleasure is central to filmmaking. And she inhabited that. She played that up. She gave us a fun time. She could move us. And when I woke up, I wanted to swim right back to you. She's not a high femme that feels untouchable and unapproachable. She's a high femme that reminds you of your own humanity and fleshiness in a really intriguing way. Where is that Marilyn? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Angelica Jade, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me about the legacy of Marilyn. You told me a bunch of stuff I didn't know. And I love old Hollywood, but you, you know what's going on. You are in the know. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Angelica Jade Bastien, critic at New York Magazine, where she wrote the hollow impersonation of Marilyn Monroe for Vulture. This episode was produced by Corey Antonio Rose and edited by Jessica Placek. Engineering support came from Carly Strange, Alex Drewenskis. We have fact checking help from Julia Wool, Greta Pittinger. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. And before I let you go, have you signed up for It's Been a Minute Plus yet? Becoming a Bless subscriber is a great way to support the work we're doing here at NPR. And you'll get to listen to this show without any sponsor breaks. So head over to plus.npr.org slash it's been a minute to find out more. And to everyone who's already signed up, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I'm Brittany Luce, and we'll be back Friday with another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.